this past week when I was doing my general Bible reading, I read Genesis 25, 6, and 7 on Thursday and Genesis 28, 29 on Friday. And when I read Genesis 25, Jacob was introduced to me. Now, Jacob was an extremely interesting character in the Bible. He's found in 22 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. He's found in 7 of the 27 books of the New Testament. So he's found altogether in 29 books of the Bible. His name is recorded 377 times in the Bible. He's one of three of the most famous men of the Old Testament. His father was Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham. So someone's mentioned that many times in the Bible, that many books of the Bible. I'd say it's probably a good idea to get acquainted with him. So when I started reading Genesis 25 on Thursday, uh, passage of scripture, of course, I've read many, many, many times over the years. It just seemed like there was a deep impression came upon my mind concerning this man, Jacob. We're told about his birth in Genesis chapter 25. Go back there, we'll find where his father was Isaac, his mother was Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah were married when Isaac was 20, excuse me, when he was 40 years of age. And then they went 20 years without a child. And then the Bible says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for a child. Now, if you're familiar, of course, with the Old Testament teachings, how God dealt with Abraham and God called Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham that through him and his seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isaac was the miraculous seed of Abraham, being born unto Abraham when he was 100 and his mother Sarah was 90. And now Isaac is 60 and he doesn't have a child, so... He's kind of like Sarah was with Abraham. They got a little anxious about it. So she brought Hagar unto Abraham for a wife, and he had Ishmael by Hagar, but that didn't change God's plans. Uh, Hagar was never in God's plans. Ishmael never was in God's plans. But a man by the name of Isaac was. And so God had to reiterate again to Abraham that he would bless Ishmael, and he did bless Ishmael as a fact of his respect for Abraham. But it's through Isaac and his seed should all the nation of the earth be blessed. Now we have Isaac. So he prays to the Lord that he might be blessed to have a child. He's 60 years of age, and, and the Lord answers that prayer. So his wife, Rebekah, conceives. Rebekah has twins in her womb. She has two boys, two twin boys. And the Bible says they struggle within her womb. When you read something like that, don't just think this is a natural occurrence. Understand, babies, when they're in the mother's womb, are going to move around, and you can feel the movement and everything, and I understand that. But this is not what that's about. It's just like it was with John the Baptist when he was in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. When Mary came on the scene carrying the Lord Jesus Christ, we find where John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb. At the salutation of Mary, at a particular time when Mary spoke miraculously, John the Baptist heard that voice. And he leapt in his mother's womb and he leapt for joy. There was emotion involved in that action. So here, Rebecca understands this is not a normal occurrence that's going on here. These two boys in my womb, of course, I don't know if she, you know, didn't have all the medical <laughs> uh, 
equipment and all the technology that they would have today, of course, to know what was happening. But she knew something's happened out of the ordinary. And the Lord tells us here, they struggled within her womb. And he told uh, Rebecca, he said, Rebecca, there are two nations in thy womb, and two manner of people are in thy womb. And he says, uh, they shall have conflict one with another. They're already having conflict in the womb. And uh, he says, and the elder is going to serve the younger. Now, I want you to remember that because this is what God says unto Isaac and Rebekah. Now, that's contrary to the culture of that day. In the culture of that day, the elder didn't serve the younger. The ser- younger served the elder. The oldest, the firstborn, had privileges. The others did not. But God's going to reverse the order here. And he tells them ahead of time about it. And so the two boys are born, and the first one who comes forth in the womb is Esau. A boy, they name him Esau. He was red and hairy all over. And as he's coming forth, his twin brother reaches out with his hand and grabs his leg, grabs his ankle or foot. And they named him Jacob. And the word Jacob means supplanter. It means trickster, deceiver, and literally heel catcher. That's what he did. He reached out and caught the heel of his brother who was in front of him. And that was going to typify his life for a while. His name was well deserved. He lived up to his name. His name was Jacob. Now later on, that name Jacob is going to be changed by the Lord. In fact, there's two references uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, chapter 35 is one of them where the Lord changed his name from Jacob to Israel. The name Israel means a prince with God. Now look at the contrast between these two names. A trickster, a deceiver, a supplanter, and a prince with God. His earthly name is given to him by his earthly parents, Isaac and Rebekah. His second name is a heavenly name. His second name is given to him by God himself. And he will live up to that name, I believe, in time. And so we find early on in Jacob's life where he lived up to the name, he, he was a man, a plain man, the Bible tells us, living in tents, where Esau was a mighty hunter. We see the distinction, the contrast between him and his twin brother early on. In the book of um, Hebrews chapter 12, you're going to find where the writer tells us that Esau was a profane person, which means godless. There was nothing godly about uh, Esau, nothing whatsoever. And we'll see these two boys brought to our attention again in a few minutes. But we find one day where Esau comes in and he's hungry and he's faint. And about to, I guess, having no energy in him, whatever. And so he asked his brother Jacob uh, to help him. And Jacob agreed to give him a pot of, mess, a, a pot of uh, anyway, some food. <laughs> give him some food uh, in terms of he would give him his birthright. And Esau sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. For a mess of pottage, he sold his birthright, something valuable, something important, something highly significant, and he sold it for a mess of pottage. Now, I recognize if you're extremely hungry, you might do things you wouldn't do normally, but to sell it and then show no remorse for it, show no regret for it. He showed no repentance for it. This is all giving you a a picture of the kind of man that Esau was. And so we're seeing the kind of man, though, that Jacob is. I mean, this is his own brother in the flesh, his own twin brother. And he wasn't going to give him anything to eat unless he agreed to sell him his birthright. You see where he's living up to his name uh, very well. 
So we find that Jacob, in the early beginnings, uh, shows no, no godliness in his own life. Certainly Esau never did in terms of his entire lifetime. But his name now again been changed to Israel. And in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, you'll find where the writer oftentimes speaks concerning this man and uses both names. He uses both names. One's his earthly name, one is his heavenly name. Now, I'm looking at people here this morning that you have an earthly name. And the very fact you came out this morning, well, the conditions like they are, and one thing or another, is a pretty good indication you've got a heavenly name. <laughs> Remember what the Lord told uh, those that went out, uh, the 70 went out in Luke chapter 10. He sent them out in pairs and sent them out with the power to heal uh, the lame and do miracles and cast out devils, etc. And they came back rejoicing that they were been successful. But the Lord said, rejoice not that you have cast out devils, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, your names are written in heaven. That's what you need to be rejoicing in. So I tell you this morning, you need to rejoice that you got a name written in heaven. Now, I don't know what that name is. I don't know what my name is that's written in heaven. Maybe it's Ronald, maybe it's not. But I know I got a name written in heaven. I have an earthly name that was put on my birth certificate when I was born. And I've got a heavenly name that was put in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And God gave me that name, just like God gave Jacob. His name. Now, when God changed somebody's name, it usually meant a new beginning. He changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham. He changed his wife's name from Sarai to, to Sarah. Uh, a new beginning. And when you go over there to uh, Genesis 35, or I believe 32, anyway, the first time in record where his name is changed, you'll find where God asked him a question. He says, what is thy name? Well, God knew what his name was. He says, Jacob. I think the Lord is saying unto him, I'm changing your name. Now, are you going to live up to your first name? You're going to live up to your second name. See, at this particular time, you're going to find where Jacob had had an experience. I want to take a look at a few verses here this morning, which God uses Jacob to teach us some lessons, both from a doctrinal and also a practical and experiential point of view. If you go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, and you look in... Uh, Verse uh, 17, I believe it is. Uh, you're going to find where he says, Fear not, O Israel. He says, um, He says, Because you're mine, and O Jacob, thy Redeemer, uh, the, God, the Holy God of Israel. Uh, he speaks unto him, both, him by both names here and says some wonderful things to him. If you go back and look in verse 8, he'll say, And O Israel, my, uh, my servant, and O Jacob, my uh, chosen one, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Notice what he says about Jacob here. He's his friend. He's the seed of his friend Abraham. He is chosen, and he's a servant. Now, when you come to Isaiah chapter 43, and I'm going uh, to read the first couple of verses here in chapter 43 of Isaiah, the first two verses. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Notice both names here. He says, He created thee, O Jacob, and he formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Now, that sounds kind of like uh, New Testament doctrine, doesn't it, concerning the Lord's people and their relationship with God? We belong to God. He knows our name. Notice what he said again. Fear not, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. 
Now, he belonged to God. God created him. God formed him. He didn't form himself. He didn't create himself. It's a picture of God's grace and God's power in changing somebody. And he says, when thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. This shows the care of God in Jacob's life, the compassion that God had in Jacob's life. How he would protect Jacob. When Jacob uh, stood in need, God would be the need. He would su- supply him with everything he stood in need of. Now, before we go any further than that, I want to go back to Isaiah 41.8. I didn't get that exactly right a minute ago. Uh, it's going to illustrate my a point. He says in Isaiah 41.14, Fear not, thou worm Jacob. Can you, can you imagine being called a worm? Anybody ever called you a worm? Uh, you know, a, a worm is not something highly esteemed, is it? Uh, about the only value people put on worms is when they buy a box of them to go fishing. And then what are they going to do? They're going to put them on a hook. And they'll put the hook in the water, hoping that a fish is going to come along and devour the worm. And that's what he calls Jacob. Fear not thou worm Jacob. Now, he could have just said, fear not Jacob, couldn't he? So why did he put that in there? Fear not thou worm Jacob. He's showing exactly what Jacob was by nature. And he's teaching me what I am by nature. By nature, I'm no better than a worm, just a worm of the dust of the earth. That's my nature. Uh, I have nothing to be proud about. I have nothing uh, to boast about. So he uses Jacob here to illustrate a doctrine of the Bible called depravity. And when you speak about depravity, you're talking about somebody, everybody by nature, that's to pray from top to bottom, bottom to top, inside out and outside in. There's nothing about us that's good. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 3. He says, there is none good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. When he says, no, not one, he's just reminding you, if you're just thinking about somebody you think might be an exception, he's cutting you off at the pass. (laughs) There's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one, just in case you're thinking about that. You may be thinking about somebody and think, oh, you know, I know they're good. Well, yeah, they may be good, but if they are, they were made good by the grace of God. Fear not thou worm Jacob, showing our depravity. And you go back to the eighth verse there. He says, O Israel, my servant, and O Jacob, my chosen. Now, who chose who here? Did, is that saying that Jacob chose God or God chose Jacob? Well, of course, God chose Jacob. And he says, you're the seed of Abraham, my friend. He was the grandson of Abraham. It's again showing language here that revealing unto me just uh, how I have a connection, relationship with God, just like Jacob did. Let's go over to the book of Romans, chapter 9. In verse 11, he's going to bring to our attention a lesson that we've already made mention of back in Genesis chapter 25 when we find both Esau and Jacob in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. And he says in verse 11, For the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him that calleth. He says, As written, the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. That God is sovereign. He, God didn't have to love anybody. He could have loved everybody. He could have loved nobody. He could have loved everybody but one. He could have loved one and nobody else. But the fact of the matter is, God did love somebody. And Jacob represents those that he loved. 
Notice the language again. For the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that's to eliminate any thought you might have that God might have loved Jacob based upon who Jacob was. We've already mentioned several things unto you that shows you that Jacob was unlovable. He was unlovable. He called his brother Hill coming out of his mother's womb. He wouldn't even give his brother a mess of pottage uh, when he was faint and weak and frail. He had to have something in return for it. He had to have his birthright for it. The most valuable thing that Esau had was the birthright, and he sold it for a mess of pottage. Again, the writer tells Hebrews that Esau was a profane person. He was a godless person. And Jacob was that way by nature in the very beginning. But the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, lest any man should boast. As is written, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That tells me he doesn't have compassion on everybody the same. And, and Paul will get into the thinking that people have when they first hear this. This can't be right. This can't be fair. Well, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. God doesn't have the same mercy on everybody. He doesn't have the same compassion on everybody. In fact, he says, I'll have mercy getting on whom? Specifically, individually, personally, on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So therefore, based on that, it's not of him that runneth, nor of him that willeth, but it's of God that showeth mercy. God uses Jacob here to teach us something about the doctrine of election. Election is not based upon a foreknowledge that God have a, has a view of your good works and your faith and your repentance and your baptism and your faithfulness, etc., etc. All those are very important subjects. It's not based upon that. Unless the grace of God had touched your heart and changed you and given you a heart of flesh, take out the old stony heart and given you a heart of flesh. In other words, raise you from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ. You'd have no desire to repent. You'd have no desire to love him. You'd have no desire to pray to him. You'd have no desire to go to the house of God. You'd have no desire to worship him and no desire to serve him. All those are evidences of God's grace. They're the effects of God's grace and not the cause of it. Now that's, that's the difference between truth and error. Cause and effect. It's getting, you know, the cart... Behind the horse instead of the front of the horse. You've got to get the horse in front of the cart, right? You've got a horse and you've got a cart. You've got to get the horse in front of the cart if you're going to make any progress and go anywhere. So when it comes to cause and effect, the things that a lot of people say is, you know, the cause of the salvation. The Bible doesn't say it's the cause of salvation. He says it's the effect of salvation. It's the evidence of salvation. I don't know how the verses can be any plainer than this. So Jacob is used here to illustrate unconditional election. He's used to illustrate the truth of our depravity. And then he's used an example, some of the most beautiful language in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, concerning anyone's experience that's found in the life of Jacob. We go back here to the book of Genesis, and we take a look at Genesis chapter 28. Now, before we get to 28, I want to back up to 27 just a moment. Because this event in chapter 27 is going to lead us right into chapter 28. In chapter 27, we're going to find where Isaac, and, uh, when you read about Isaac and Rebekah, they had a great beginning, but they didn't have a great end. They had a great beginning. Isaac was the son of, of Abraham. He was the miraculous son of Abraham. You're familiar with that story in Genesis chapter 22, when God told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, on top of a mountain there. He was going to slay him, and Abraham was willing to do that. But God provided a ram by horns in the thicket that took his place, 
and Isaac went free. Now we're all familiar with all that. But when you go back and read where I was at a while ago in Genesis 25, when Isaac, I mean, excuse me, when um, Jacob and Esau are born, you're going to find a statement right here. It says, and Esau, excuse me, and Isaac loved Esau because he's venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, you might just read that and run right over it. But what that tells me here is when you show favorites among your children, you're just asking for consequences and things that's not going to be very beneficial and profitable. So you're going to find that. Now, you're going to find where Isaac has gotten old and his eyesight has left him. He's dim, can't see. And he calls Esau and he says to his son Esau, he says, uh, I'm about to die. Now, you're going to find where Isaac uh, lived quite a few years after that. Quite a few years after that. I've known people who've been dying for years and they're still living. You ever known anybody like that? I've known preachers that way. Uh, who couldn't, uh, you know, they thought they were going to live another year. And they lived 10, 15, 20 years. Nobody knows for sure when you're going to pass this scene of life. Isaac didn't, but he thought he might. So he says in Esau, he said, I want you to go out and kill me, uh, you know, bring me some venison that I might eat before I die, and I'm going to bless you. Now, what did God tell Isaac and Rebekah earlier? They told Isaac and Rebekah that the elder was going to serve the younger. Isaac's forgotten this, apparently. Because he's not going to be able to reverse what God has done. And he's getting ready to put the, the, the blessing of the firstborn on Esau. But then we learn a little something about Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau all in this story right here. All in this little story right here. The Bible says that Rebekah overheard what Isaac said to Esau. She liked to eavesdrop. <laughs> that's not the first, I mean, that's not going to be the only time. She heard that. So she gets her son Jacob and tells her son Jacob what's about to happen. And she said, I want you to go kill me two kids and I'm going to make some savory meat like your father Isaac likes and you're going to go and take it to him and you're going to act like you're his son Esau. You know, Jacob objects to that, but notice he doesn't object because it's wrong. He objects because he thinks he's going to get caught. He said, I'll be a deceiver to him. He'll know my arms are smooth and not hairy like my brother Esau. You see, we know there are ten commandments, right? But some people have an eleventh commandment. The eleventh commandment is this, thou shalt not get caught. <laughs> That's some people's eleventh commandment, thou shalt not get caught. <laughs> and Jacob was afraid of getting caught. He's not, he's not objecting because it's wrong. He's not objecting at all because he's wrong. it's wrong. He's objecting because he's afraid he's going to get caught. And she says, don't worry about it. She says, I'm going to put Esau's clothes on you. And I'm going to take the skin of those goats and I'm going to put it on your arms and on your neck. She knew that Isaac would probably, you know, investigate him pretty thoroughly, and she's covering all of her bases. She said, let your curse be upon me. I'm going to get a little head right here. I'm going to make a statement lest I forget it. After all this is said and done, you're going to find where Rebekah is going to ask Isaac to send Jacob back to where they came from to get a bride. And she says, tells Jacob, you go and you sojourn there for a while, he will be gone 20 years and Rebecca will never see him again. Rebecca will never see him again. That's a high price to pay, isn't it? So let's back up now a little bit. You find Jacob does exactly what she tells him to do and he comes in his father's presence. And when he comes in his father's presence, 
The father asked a question, who art thou, my son? And we find where Jacob says the first of at least five lies to his father. He says, I am thy firstborn son, Esau. He says, come now and eat of the venison that I made for thee. Well, it wasn't venison. That's another lie. He didn't make it either. His mother made it, Rebecca. He says, how is it you got it so quickly? He said, because the Lord was with me. You know, again, it's bad enough to lie. It's bad enough to deceive. When you bring the Lord in on it, you're just asking for double trouble. He said, the Lord was with me, which he was not, obviously. And so Jacob says, well, come here a little bit. See, I mean, uh, Isaac. Isaac is going to depend upon four of the five senses God gives us. Now, one of them is his sight, and that's gone. But he felt of it. That's another sense, feel. He smelled his garments. That's another one. He listened to his voice. And he says, well, the garments and all are Esau's and the arms are Esau's, but the voice sounds like Jacob. He said, who art thou, my son? Are thou Esau, my firstborn? And Jacob said, yes, I am. And that was at least his fifth lie. He deceived him. He lied to him. He supplanted him. And then he went ahead and blessed him. He now has become convinced and he gives him the blessing. After blessing him, Jacob goes out, and just shortly Esau comes in. They almost met each other. Wonder what would happen then. If they'd have met each other, and Jacob would have seen Esau with his own clothes on. He'd, what are you doing my clothes on? <laughs> I mean, it was close, but he just missed him. And Esau comes in there, and it doesn't take him and Isaac long to figure out what has taken place. But see, the blessing has already been given. See, Esau and Rebekah did not have to help the Lord along in any of this. And through deception and lies, they've created a, a terrible mess. And now, this is why Rebekah comes unto Jacob. You'll find where Esau married two uh, Hittite women. That was a grief unto, es uh, unto Isaac and Rebekah. A grief to him. He'll marry a third one. And the third wife he marries actually was a daughter of Uncle Ishmael. He did all that to despise his own parents. And Rebekah goes to Isaac and tells Isaac that we need to send Jacob away, that he do not, does not do the same thing that Esau did. And Isaac agrees with that. And they send him away, back to the land where they came from to get a bride. Again, I emphasize, he'll be gone for 20 years. And she'll never see him again. High price to pay for lies and deception. You're going to find where Jacob is going to go three days. Or three, he's a 500-mile trip. He goes three days uh, to a certain place. And he decides he's going to spend the night there that night. And he takes some rocks and he puts under his head for, you know, a pillow, P-I-L-L-O-W, pillow. And he goes to sleep that night. And then the Lord appears to him in a dream. And he sees a ladder reaching from heaven down to the earth, of earth right into heaven, and angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. And then the Lord speaks to him. He says, I am the God of thy father Abraham and thy father Isaac. And the land that you're lying on right here, he said, I'm going to give to you and to your seed. The very land that you're laying on right now, I'm going to give it to you. And not only you, but also your seed, and your seed shall be like the sand of the seashore. Jacob don't even have any children yet. And God makes him a promise that 
His seed's going to be like the sand of the seashore, and this is going to be their land to inherit. He said, I will bring thee back. He said, I'll be with you. I will keep you. I will bring you. I will not forsake you. Notice all these eyes here. These eyes belong to God, aren't you? Uh, when you think about how, how he expressed this to Jacob. He said, Jacob, I'm going to be with you. Jacob, I'm going to keep you. Jacob, I'm going to bring you. Jacob, I will not leave you to all these things be fulfilled, and I will bring you back into this land. Yes, he's going to leave that land, but 20 years later, he's going to bring him back. What these wonderful promises God has made to this man. I want you to see yourself uh, in some of this too. The promises that God has made. What a, what a great God we have. He's made so many great and precious promises unto us, and God cannot lie. And so Jacob awakes. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he took those rocks that he had on his head for a pillow, and he makes a pillar out of it, P-I-L-A-R, and he takes and pours oil upon that rock. And this is the first time you'll notice in the scripture where somebody did that, but not the last. It came to be when somebody would do this, sometimes they'd pour water out on it. They'd pour something on a rock like that, and that was symbolic of them pouring their heart and their soul out to God and being committed to serving God. And that's what Jacob's doing right here. He pours it on that rock. And he called it the house of God and named it Bethel. That's what the name Bethel means. It means the house of God. We got a wonderful name here, don't we? Bethel, the house of God. And we find a change taking place in the life of Jacob. Now I asked you, when Jacob laid down there that night, three days on his journey, was he, speak, was he seeking God? Was he praying to God? Was he looking for God? No, he was not. He was fleeing from his brother Esau because Esau, after he found out what happened to him, made a pledge to kill his brother Jacob. His mother, by the way, overheard it. It's the second time his mother overheard things. Can't you just see her around the corner, listening, eavesdropping, Jacob will not come back for 20 years, but he will come back based upon the promise of God. Now I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32 because Moses here is going to refer to this same experience, but he's going to use a little different language, some beautiful language as far as I'm concerned. In Deuteronomy 32, 9, he says, The Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is a lot of his inheritance. The Lord's portion is his people. God created all things. Everything that exists, exists because God created and includes all the nations of the earth in that period of time. Everybody that lived on the earth at that time, all the nations, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, all the ites, all owed their existence to God as our creator God. But here he says the Lord's people is his portion. Who are the Lord's people? The nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. It's going to occupy the land of Canaan one day. Remember, in Isaiah 43, 1, he says, Thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, that formed thee, O Israel. They were created, they were formed by God. He will prepare them to enter into that land. When they come out of the land of Egypt, when God brings them out a million plus, a million plus, when they come out of the land of Egypt, go to Exodus chapter 12 and read about it, chapters 13 and 14, when he brings them out of the land of Egypt, that's his people right there. The Lord's portion is his people, and he's going to bring them out, and 40 years later, they're going to occupy the land of Canaan. And Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. 
I want to just ask you something this morning. Is the Lord your portion? Psalm 16, 5, David says, the Lord is my portion. Now I can see how I want the Lord to be my portion, don't you? Do you see how you want the Lord to be your portion? I mean, he's the one who created you. He's the one who gives you the breath of life. He's the one who feeds you and clothes you and shelters you. He's the one who blesses you with your family and your spouse and your children and your grandchildren. He's the one who gives you the strength to do a day's work that you might provide for your family, etc. He's blessed you to see the sunlight and the moonlight and the stars and all the great things of God, the mountains and the vales and the, the waters of this earth. I mean, I can see why I want him to be my portion. But why would I be the portion of God? What does God see in me? He say the Lord's portion is his people. You see, looking forward, this is just a picture, a type of God's eternal family. God's elect family. God's elect family of all the inhabitants of the earth. God has a people and those people is God's portion. I'm glad that I can feel like the Lord is my portion. I just don't understand why I might be the portion of God. What about you? Remember thou worm Jacob, that's exactly what I am, exactly what you are by human nature. We are depraved, we are separated from God, alienated from God, always remaining in that state. We're not for the grace and mercy of God and making a difference in our lives, coming to us, just like he did Jacob. He said, the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is a lot of his inheritance. It says, the Lord found Jacob in a desert land in a waste howling wilderness. It says he had led him, he instructed him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. I, I, I love that language. Now get the picture. He found Jacob. Jacob didn't find him. He found Jacob. Jacob wasn't looking for the Lord. Jacob wasn't seeking the Lord. Jacob wasn't praying to the Lord. He wasn't looking to the Lord in any way whatsoever. When he went that three days journey, my friends, he laid down that night. He laid down in the fear of his brother Esau, not knowing how close he might be. And God appeared unto him. He found him in a desert land, in a waste, howling wilderness. That's exactly where God found you and found me. Not literally, but in a spiritual sense. We were in a desert land. We were in a waste, howling wilderness. When God found us, we were not seeking God, looking for God, praying to God. Certainly had no love for God. God found us and put his spirit inside of us, his divine nature, and guess what? Now we have something inside of us that yearns to cry out to God. We cry, Abba, Father, unto God. Says he found him in a desert land in a waste howling wilderness. Says he led him. He instructed him. And he kept him as the apple of his eye. Literally, the apple of the eye is your pupil. And it's something very precious to us, isn't it? God gave us a lot of protection for us, didn't he? He gave us eyebrows. He gave us eyelids. He gave us eyelashes. All three of those will protect something very precious to us on the inside called our eye, the pupil. Literally, that's what the apple of somebody's eye is. That's why you, know, you find it used like this sometimes when somebody is real sweet on somebody else. <laughs> you know, a young man's got his eyes on a young lady. You know, he says, she's the apple of my eye. <laughs> she's special. <laughs> she's real special. I, I set eyes on a young lady 53 years ago. She was the apple of my eye then. She's the apple of my eye now. She was precious to me then. She's precious to me now. She's been precious to me all along life's journey. 
And I trust you'll always be the apple of mine eye. And I can tell you this morning, you are the apple of God's eye, just like Jacob was. And when God found you, he found you in a desert land, a waste, hell, and wilderness. And then he led you, he instructed you, and he kept you as the apple of his eye. Then he says, an eagle stirreth up her nest and floodeth over her young. Get the picture here, the word picture. As an eagle uh, lit, uh, spreadeth her wings. You've seen this on National Geographic more than once, I'm sure. As the eagle stirreth up her nest and spreadeth forth her wings. She spreads her wings. She stirs her nest. She flutters over her young. She takes them. And she puts them on her wings for her safety. She trains them, gets them ready to leave the nest. That's how God was dealing with Jacob. Says he caused him to ride upon the hills and to, to, upon the increase of the hills, he says, in the valleys. And he caused him to eat the honey out of the rock and, and oil out of the flaty rock. That's just a picture of the great choice blessings that God had upon Jacob. See, when I get acquainted with Jacob, I hope I'm getting acquainted with myself. I hope I'm getting acquainted with myself the more I get acquainted with Jacob. And the promises God made to Jacob, those same promises are made to me. Let's go over here in the book of Romans in chapter 11. And in verse 26, the apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome. He says, all Israel shall be saved. For the deliverer, spell with a capital D, for the deliverer shall come forth out of Zion. That means, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, the deliverer. When he says he shall come forth out of Zion, that just simply means he came in the fullness of times. And he came fulfilling all the Old Testament uh, prophecies concerning him. He came out of Zion. For the liver shall come forth out of Zion and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now I could give you many scriptures here at this time this morning to teach us, to teach you and remind me how I am to make an effort every day to turn away from ungodliness. Titus 2 and 11 will do. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, godly, and righteous in this present world. That's what the grace of God in your heart teaches you. Sometimes people, you know, they begin to try to understand kind of what we believe concerning the grace of God. Uh, they have an inclination to think, well, this would, be, uh, this would lead to a licentious way of living. If God foreknew you and chose you and elected you and named you before the foundation of the world... You belonged to him in a covenant relationship and Jesus Christ died for you and saved you from your sins by his shedding blood and has borne you of the spirit of God and it's all by the hand of God and the mercy of God, then you could just live any old way you want to live. My question, somebody asked me that, is this, well, just how are you wanting to live? How are you wanting to live? The grace of God tells me that I'm denying God's and worldly lust. I'm to deny it on a daily basis. I've had all, all the world that I want. Now I'm weak and I'm prone to, to sin and I'm frail and one thing and another, my friends. And I have to do the battle with the, my nature and with the devil in this world on a daily basis. But God tells me I'm to deny ungodly and worldly lust and live soberly and righteously in God in this present world. That's why you put on the whole armor of God and you go out and you fight against all these enemies I'm talking about right now. But if a person takes the position, well, if I knew that, I'd just go out and live any old way I want to live. That doesn't show too much evidence he has the grace of God in his life. 
Because the grace of God teaches you what a sinner you are. It teaches something I cannot teach you. I can teach you about God and teach you about sin and talk to you and teach you about the redemption in Jesus Christ and the shedding blood of our Savior that saved you from your sin. But it takes God to teach you in your heart that you're a sinner. For you to really realize it, recognize it, become aware of it. It's when God's Spirit occupies your heart that teaches you inwardly that you are a sinner unworthy, at least of God's mercy. Listen to what uh, Jacob said in, um, in Genesis 32.10. He said to the Lord, I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies, of the truth thou hast shown thy servant. This is after the Lord dealt with him. I mentioned a while ago. When he had that experience with the Lord and that waste howling wilderness, after it was all over, he said, I'm not worthy. That's what it taught Jacob in his heart. He was an unworthy creature, unworthy man, unworthy person. He didn't walk away from there with his thumb, uh, you know, his lapels like this and say, well, I guess I must be special in the sight of God. God gave me a special favor. God gave me a special message. No, he said, I am not worthy of the least of thy mercies that thou hast shown thy servant. Or of the truth thou hast shown thy servant. He gets left out sometimes. Not worthy the least of thy mercies and the truth thou hast shown thy servant. The Lord showed him some truth. He says, I'm not worthy of it. He showed him great mercy. He said, I'm not worthy of the very least of all these mercies you see. So let's get back to the text in Romans eleven twenty six. And so all Israel shall be saved. And the word Israelite here, I don't have time to go and explain all this, but I can assure you, we study the context. The word Israel here does not have reference to national Israel. It has reference to spiritual Israel. Paul made it very clear what a spiritual Jew is in Romans 2, 28 and 29. When he says, for he's not a Jew which is one outwardly, that is circumcision of the flesh. But he's a Jew which is one inwardly, that is circumcision of the heart. He says it's of the spirit and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but praise of God. That's what a spiritual Jew is. When he said all Israel shall be saved, he's not talking about all the nation of, of, of Israel. If it was, you got, a, you got some serious problems in other places of the scripture. How is God's people described? Let's go to Revelation 5, 9. The writer tells us here concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, said, Thou art worthy, O Lamb, to loose the seals of the book, to open the book and loose the seals thereof, because thou hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and a nation upon the face of the earth. He didn't say thou hast redeemed all nations, all people, all kindreds, all tongues. He didn't say that. He says, redeemed us by thy blood out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people upon the face of this earth. We believe God's got a people indeed, as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. We believe God's got a people all around this globe, all around this earth. We believe God's got a people, my friends, among every race, every nationality, every tongue, every language, etc., etc. And he's got a people there because uh, among these people because he foreknew them and chose them in Christ before time ever began. So all Israel shall be saved. You can mark it down, brother. The deliverer shall come forth out of Zion and shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. While I'm to turn away from ungodliness, I wouldn't have the desire to turn away from ungodliness if Christ hadn't turned ungodliness away from me. You understand what I'm saying? From a legal perspective, from a legal point of view, when Christ died on Calvary, when he shed his blood and paid the sin price, he took our sins and own body to the tree of the cross and he put them away forever, my friends, in the land of forgetfulness. He put away as far as the east is from the west. You notice he didn't use north and south there, right? You start traveling north, you'll reach a certain point where if you keep going, you start going south and vice versa. 
You start traveling south, you'll reach a certain point, and you keep going, you'll start traveling to the north. But you start traveling east, you'll always go east. Or if you start traveling to the west, you'll always go to the west. How far did God put away our sins? As far as the east is from the west. The Lord didn't get mixed up on his uh, geography there. The Lord knew how he wanted to pin that down, how he wanted us to understand it. He put it as far as the east is from the west. Other portions of God's word tells us he put our sins away behind his back where he will never see them again. He cast our sins in the very depths of the sea. I, I understand there's parts of the sea that man never has reached the bottom to. Never has. That's how far God put away the sins of his people. Let's look over here in the book of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. And here the Lord, it says, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, your sons of Jacob are not consumed. So what's that teaching me? That's teaching me preservation. <laughs> Why are the sons of Jacob not consumed? Because the Lord said, I am the Lord, and I change not. When he says, I am the Lord, that means he's a, whatever he's established as his purpose, as his counsel, it's going to be carried out to a jot and a tittle. Every T be crossed, every I shall be dotted. I am the Lord. I am. I love the I am's of the Bible referring to God, don't you? <laughs> Especially in the Gospel of John. I am the Lord. I change not. See, God's not going to change his word, not going to change his counsel, not going to change his purpose. I am the Lord. I change not. Based on that statement, the Lord says, Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. How long do you think the nation of Israel would have stayed a nation had not God made this promise right here? They'd done everything within their ability to try to consume themselves. <laughs> but they couldn't do it because God kept overriding. God kept overruling. God kept blessing my friends providentially and kept them, uh, uh, you know, from being um, just taken away from this earth here. Why? Because I am Lord and I change not. Therefore, your sons of Jacob are not consumed. That shows the preservation of the saints. When you study Jacob, you'll study something about depravity. You study Jacob, you're going to study something about the election of God. You're going to understand something about the salvation of the elect and also the preservation of God's family and how the Lord's people are his portion. I like this language here in Isaiah 43. I want to reread the first two verses in our closing remarks. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Did Jacob create himself? Did Israel form himself? I think not. O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. He didn't make a redeemer. He said, I've redeemed you. And I've called thee by thy name. That's what God did on Calvary. Legally, he redeemed us by the shedding of his blood. And then in the work of regeneration, of vital sense, he calls you from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. He borns you again. He makes you alive in Jesus. That's what he does. I've called thee by thy name. Notice how personal this is. How, how you know, it's an, on an individual basis, on a personal basis, I have called thee. I call thee by thy name. God, God knows your name. Don't you know that? I want you to know that. Uh, you, you, have, you know, somebody said, well, you know, I know faces, I just can't call the names. I'm glad that's not God talking, aren't you? <laughs> oh, no. God, God knows your name. He never has forgotten your name. Never will forget your name. He gave you the name. Remember, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. You belong to me. If you, if you belong to God, that means God belongs to you. 
If the Lord is your portion, that means uh, uh, you're the Lord's portion. And then verse 2, when thou passest through the waters, I'll be with you. Oftentimes, waters in the Bible is a picture of turbulence, a picture of adversity. It's a picture of instability. It's a picture of storms. He says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When thou walkest through the fire, fire oftentimes symbolizes afflictions of one kind or another, persecutions, sufferings. When, you walk, when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. You reckon the Hebrew children, if they here this morning, can say, Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. We was in a fiery furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. And our hair was not singed. Our clothes were not burned. There was no smell of smoke upon them. And we had somebody in there with us and the fire just burned off the ropes on our wrists and our ankles. And we just walked around having a good time of fellowship with the Lord in that fiery furnace. This verse says that's exactly how God will work with you, how God will bless you. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee, since thou was precious in my sight. Thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore I will give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that's called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. If you want to go home and read this and count the eyes, I'll tell you ahead of time, there's 13 of them. 13 eyes. God <laughs> refers to himself 13 times as I, 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 I. Now, the Bible teaches me that I'm not to use that word I too much. <laughs> but I love the eyes of God. And I'm not talking about the E-I- uh, the E-Y-E-S eyes, I'm talking about the capital I, that God is 13 times God says something here as a blessing and as a promise unto those that's under consideration. He's promised to be with us, never to leave us, never to forsake us. When I read the life of Jacob, I, I, I want to see myself and, and submit. You know, let me just ask you this. Have, have you ever lived some part of your life where your name just could have been Jacob? But I trust you've lived a good portion of life where your name could be Israel, a prince with God. Thank you so much for your wonderful attention and your prayers here this morning.